different this way comes something something different something different something different this way comes something something different something different welcome to the getting to know home edition of something different this way comes featuring Lita McKellar I'm Heather McLeod so excited to share this conversation with you. It was so much fun. It reminded me, this conversation with Lita McKellar, a little bit of of the Greening City edition of Something Different This Way Comes with with Summer Stevenson, because because like Summer, Lita's work means looking the climate crisis head on, which is hard. And reassuring, because there is a lot of progress that's kind of been quietly going on for, for a long time that I'm excited to learn more about and bring more into the spotlight. But, 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 there's not nearly enough actual change. That's what makes that daily face-to-face hard. So Lita's role is as the sustainability coordinator at Lakehead University. She's the first person in that role within the Office of Sustainability, which is also fairly new. She was at the heart of the Year of Climate Action this past academic year, too. So there's lots, lots to talk about. But in contrast to Summer's role within the city planning, which is mostly focused on carbon emissions, Lita's work at the university is, is mostly focused on inclusion, as in getting everyone to see and pursue their part in solving climate change here in Thunder Bay, because it affects all sectors of society, all fields of study, all of us. So Lita's work is focused on transformative systemic change. How do we do that? That's what we're talking about. It is about relationships and community and building our connections to one another and and our connections to our home, to this land and water and air and planet. I'm delighted to share this conversation with Lita McKellar. I started by asking her where she grew up. Something different this way comes. Something different. Something I grew up in Toronto, downtown, (laughs) and I was there until about 18, and then I lived in Montreal for a few years. Were you going to school there? Yeah, I went to McGill University. What were you studying? I was studying African Studies, Bachelor of Arts. Mostly what I took away from it was decolonization and post-colonial theory, and it definitely impacted my life a lot. I'm, I'm glad I did it. Just so much about questioning colonialism and and how it's affected humans and the earth. And so I just saw it as a way to really unlearn a lot of the things that I have unconsciously learned as a person growing up and just deconstruct the, the world that I live in in a, in a necessary way. So I did my minor in Canadian history. And one of the things that blew my mind was a map that showed the, the best current understanding of the nations of North America before colonization. And I looked at my family's history and when various branches had had come from Europe to be part of the economy here, they were really moved around by economic forces I was understanding better. 
And, um, and that was just a, a brain explosion, feeling like most of the settlers that came, came across more as pawns to win this goal that was very distant from the actual land and much more um, sort of at the whims of forces that are outside our day-to-day decision and options. Um, but anyway, that was all part of, of me too in, in, uh, in university, learning about Canada history beyond the, the, the very simple narrative that might have been covered when I was in high school to, oh, by the way, there's so many other layers of, of what happened and how it was experienced. Yeah, it's it can be a tricky area to uncover because even now there's I think there's still a lot of research and a lot of storytelling to be done for all of us to listen to. When you actually start asking like the questions that you're asking, you realize how little there is out there. It's growing for sure because there's so much interest and need for it right now. But that's one thing I've noticed in in my journey as a white settler. I've been so interested in learning more about my family history and my ancestors. When did they come to Canada? How did they gain from the colonialism that's happened here? And how far back would I have to go to really see when they were connected to the land and in a more spiritual way and in a deeper way than we are now? I don't really have the answer to those questions, but certainly like you, I have noticed how uh, even white settlers, I think you're right, they were sort of co-opted for colonial gain and sort of powers that be, for lack of a better term, to establish colonialism in, in the new world. And that comes with a lot of complex, there's a lot of complex emotions that come with that and just the different things that you realize in, in, in knowing that. Um, because on the one hand, we've lost... I think we've lost so much community and connection to our culture. And there's a lot of grief. I think that it does go with that. But on the other hand, we have gained so much privilege and indigenous communities haven't out of this process. So there's sort of that, there's that tension there between really differing emotions that come out of this and and grappling with our past and figuring out what does that mean for our future? That's, That's something I've thought about anyways. Because I feel like that is a key part of our coming together as a community to survive and maybe even thrive. You and I are both settlers to the land, and we are settlers to this community, right? We moved here as adults. We've chosen it. Um, How do we get to really know it? And how do we really honor it and support it and nourish it as a person's supposed to? Um, Not just live somewhere, but give to that somewhere. Yeah. I I think I hear what you're saying, that... It is complicated. It's not a black and white situation at all. And relationships are so important. You know, the more, I think the more we create safe spaces to talk about this, honestly and earnestly and with grace, you know, we can get at what you're talking about and sort of seeing this a bit more holistically. And yeah. That how we live here now is not just about simple questions. It really is a disentangling of things that are so present, they're invisible or hard to see at least. Yes, reciprocity to our the places we live is so important. <laughs> yeah. And that's how indigenous communities across the world have been living for millennia. So this makes me think of the first thing when your name came up was that you're part of a small group that have uh, created a little walk around the campus. Tell me about this walk. 
So this walk has been put together by a variety of people at Lakehead. It's sort of gone through many different iterations. At one point, I was a graduate assistant for David Greenwood, and, and he's in the Faculty of Education at Lakehead. And he really wanted to create an alternative campus tour that students, I think, was his primary audience at that time, could hear and reflect and participate and explore different narratives on campus. So really engaging with some of the political histories and other narratives that are told on campus and then perhaps challenging them or looking for alternative lenses. And I ended up becoming the sustainability coordinator for Lakehead later on. And I sort of took that idea and in a slightly different direction after working with him. And I had done a lot of reflecting on sustainability and how the word is, has really been shaped by white settlers and middle-class folk. And in post-secondary institutions, it's been really relegated to the operational side of things. And this has changed a lot in the last 10 years, but it, it previously it had been. And hadn't really encompassed, at least in Office of Sustainability and stuff like that, social justice and equity, indigenous worldviews, that side of things, which is a really important side of sustainability, because I approach sustainability as an integrated concept, not just meets the needs of today without compromising the needs of tomorrow. And so I actually read Robin Wall Kimmer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass, Potawatomi scholar, scientist, botanist, mother, and her whole book is about Western science and indigenous science lens on plants. And it's a really great book. I recommend it. She doesn't use the word sustainability. She uses the word reciprocity a lot, uh, interconnection and gratitude. And I see those three pillars as really important pieces of sustainability. So I had just been doing a lot of reflection on what does sustainability mean and how at Lakehead can we start practicing it in a deeper way that's not just not just emissions reductions, not, not that's important, um, not just you know, standard recycling, but that's going a lot deeper than that. And so I teamed up with various folks uh, at Lakehead, faculty members, students, and staff to create a decolonization walk. It's The title is still up for grabs. We haven't really come up with a title. That's just a working title to, to, for now. Um, the most recent rendition of it has been led by Jerry Lynn Orr, who's our Indigenous Curriculum Specialist, uh, Dr. Jessica Yurgudis, who's a faculty member in Indigenous Learning, and myself. We have an advisory committee as well, and we've also uh, talked to our Elders Council at Lakehead about this project. Um, as well, I should mention Joe Duncan. He's a, he's a graduate student in social studies who helped us uh, put it together as well. Anyways, the walk is, it was our attempt to invite whether it's faculty or students or staff at Lakehead, to think about what is our individual and collective complicity in settler colonialism in local, regional, and national contexts, and how might we also challenge or explore the, the narratives that are celebrated and told on Lakehead's campus. It was designed for a settler audience, but anyone is welcome. But we really wanted to focus our education on, you know, how can settlers who might be confused about how to get involved in uh, reconciliation related work, uh, expand their knowledge of it a little bit more. You know, we really wanted to cater to those people. So 
as you can imagine, there's, there's so many possibilities, so many angles, so many paths you can take it. Um, there's a lot of energy behind it and a lot of excitement, which is, is great, but it's, it is slower moving work because we want to do it meaningfully and well and be sensitive to the subject matter at hand. So if I were on the walk, give me an example of a place we might stop and a story you might tell me. So one of the stops on the walk is by the footbridge to the hangar. On that footbridge, there is a plaque that says something like this plaque recognizes the Bolosky or Bolosky family, I forget the pronunciation, and the lands they donated to Lakehead in public trust or something like that. The Bolosky family had farmed the land that Lakehead's campus sits on now and had uh, donated it. They, they donated it. And we use that as an entry point into what narratives is this celebrating or revering and what narratives is it missing and invite folks to think about, you know, what else could we do in follow-up to this plaque? Like, should there be, what about a plaque that acknowledges the traditional territory that Lakehead's on? Or would that just not even be sufficient? Would that just be really superficial? We invite people to think of what other ways could we actually be having these conversations that prompt people to think about reconciliation more in this area. I'm not sure if I'm doing a great job of explaining that, but we really just use that plaque as as an entry point to to talking about land acknowledgements and, and their place or for some lack thereof, and then how else we might do this work in a deeper way. After that stop, we go down the, the McIntyre River and we talk a little bit about some of the geological history of campus and social history. Um, indigenous communities used the, the land that Lakehead's on for uh, up to 10,000 years ago. And there's evidence of that through various um, belongings that have been found. So there's all this rich history there and that story is just not really told that much. So it's, I always think it's amazing that, you know, us as staff and faculty and students, we're walking around campus all the time, but we don't really know that much about it. Uh, many of us, we aren't really engaging in, in the histories of this place or, or getting to know it. Well, speaking of finding ways to help people see more clearly how something affects many of us in many ways, you were a part, a big part of the year of climate action at Lakehead University, which has Lakehead University, like, do they do year ofs? I don't think that's the first time I've heard of a year of. Like, was that a new thing? I believe it was a new thing. I, I haven't really heard of a year of in the way that we approached it, which was a university wide collaboration and invitation for all hands on deck, like every department, unit, faculty, staff, student to get involved. So, to my knowledge, this was the first time. And how did it come about? Like who said, let's make it the year of? Do you remember? Yes, I do. <laughs> this is, see, this <laughs> is, this is more fresh for me because this is a very recent part of my work. And it's one that I get really excited about, but I'll try to be succinct here, but maybe from 2012 or 2014 to 2020, there was a student led campaign run by Fossil Free Lakehead campaigning for the university to divest its endowment of fossil fuel holdings. And in 2020, it is divesting its fossil fuel holdings. And so that spawned conversation amongst our Sustainability Stewardship Council. That's a council of staff, students, and faculty, as well as community members, like 30 plus people on that council. And 
this is really great. Lakehead was the sixth Canadian university to divest its endowment. There's been more since. But it doesn't stop there. Now where do we go? How can we continue to be a climate leader? And that question became the focus of, of that council over 2020. And one of the recommendations from one of the members, Dr. Lindsay Galway in Health Sciences, was to have a year of climate action. So we said, let's take that up. And so we pitched it with our senior administration at Lakehead. And lo and behold, in 2021 of September, the university declared the academic year the year of climate action. And I do think it's been an innovative approach to climate action at a university because it's encouraging all departments to get involved. I'm sure you know it's very easy in an institutional setting to be siloed in our work. For one department to champion sustainability or climate action with others, you know, having their their own mandates and, and we're not always working together. And so this year of climate action really challenged everybody to think, how does climate action connect to your studies or your work? Because climate change is affecting all sectors of society. And if we want to meet the IPCC's, their international intergovernmental panel on climate change's targets, everybody has to get involved. It's the responsibility of everyone. And so it was unique in that sense. And I think it was also innovative in the sense that the year of climate action did not endeavor to approach climate action as just greenhouse gas reductions. Climate change is a human problem. It's not really a science problem. And so we really wanted to build relationships and leadership's roles necessary to sustain climate action and to look at climate action as something that's about the academics of the university, teaching students. So I I need to go back. Climate change is a societal problem, not a science problem. So in other words, the science has been done. We know what's happening. We know it'll fix it. We have many options to choose from. That tool is ready and sharpened. We just need to pick it up. It's switching our society around so that we all see how we can actively pick up the right tool for us and be part of the solution and change things that have been proven to not be sustainable. Yes. Or contributing to the problem. And Paul Hawken, who's a climate activist, says the best climate action you can take is the one that you want to take. It's the one that connects to your gifts and your strengths. And that's where you're going to shine and be most effective in this movement. But he also talks about this as a human problem is that obviously we need radical and innovative technologies, solar panels, wind turbines, all sorts of things. But he says the most radical, complex climate technologies are the human heart, head and mind. And at the end of the day, it's about political will and it's about social mobilization and having enough people saying this really matters and we need to do something about it. And then I guess the other way it's a human problem is that Yes, the impacts of climate change are going to cause extreme weather events and already are causing extreme weather events and and mass relocation of people, especially in the global south. And so we want to reduce greenhouse gases to avoid those types of situations immediately. But it's also about, he uses the term regeneration. Like we also need to be focusing on making life better for everyone. So putting life at the center of every action and decision is something he says. And to get everybody on board to want to sign up for for climate action and the climate movement in the long haul, this is about making life better for everyone. It's about 
better employment opportunities, better well-being of our personal bodies, minds, and souls, anti-racism work, all of those different things. There's a lot of things we know we could do better. Yeah, and... While we're taking down the wall, why not make improvements that we know we need to do? Yes, we all have to gain from that. But I think the, the work that you did with Climate Action Year at Lakehead University where the focus was how do we help everybody find their place in this work? How do we find every, help everybody find the way they can be a champion? I really think that's so powerful as opposed to dictating and saying, you need to do less of, don't you understand the science? Yeah. It's much more of what do you bring to this table? This is a potlatch. Yes. Yeah, I was mindful of that throughout the campaign, although it's very easy to get caught in that dictating phase sometimes. But I think you're absolutely right. It's That's not where we want to be focusing our energy. And this is not about being right in a way that makes other people wrong, even though I feel like it's so easy to get caught in that frame of mind. You know, it's there's so many contradictions with sustainability and climate work. And I don't like to put my energy there. I think we need to be all just putting the blame aside and coming to the table and figuring out how we can, how we can heal and move forward from this. And the diversity of perspectives is absolutely critical. And that's another thing that the Year of Climate Action, we've learned from it anyways, is there has to be a diversity of voices at the table. That's how we're going to move forward well with this. And also, sounds like such a bureaucratic term, multi-stakeholder representation, but the Year of Climate Action, it really engaged students and staff. In fact, it wasn't just a senior admin thing. Like It was sort of came from the bottom, but was supported by senior admin. But <laughs> Really involving students, you know, that's so important. Yes, because that's why we're there, to educate students. But students, they have such an important perspective to offer on this, and we can't lose that in in this work. So, But that remains a, a question for me moving forward, is what's the best way to engage students in leadership, in climate leadership? Uh, and something I need to do more reflecting on. But I do think that having all levels of the university working together is really powerful. And that, that's where we're going to see transformative climate change. It's harder to uh, kind of change the tone of the conversation and be aware of who we're not including and figure out a way to include more people. Yeah. One thing I was reading recently from Paul Hawken, again, not to over-reference him, but i really inspired by him lately. He said, we don't need to make a choice between saving the planet and being happy, having well-being and prosperity. Like this really about bringing back life and bringing us back to life. And I thought that's really helpful too, because I think there can be a lot of fear associated with, you know, I don't know what kind of changes are going to be necessary with this. And I don't want to have to sacrifice my well-being for this. And and I don't have any more time to do more. Yeah. I'm as busy as I can possibly be. But are there things I can put down? Absolutely. So I think it's important to reframe the conversation that, you shouldn't have to sacrifice things to have a better life. There's other ways to do this. So Yeah, when I say are the things yeah. I can put down, I think of how much time and energy we spend on what I think of as walls and defensive measures. Like, let's make sure that this is doled out in the right priority. Let's make sure nobody gets this who doesn't really need it. So, for instance, if we introduced a basic income such that we didn't need ODSP or parental leave EI or regular old EI, if we increased and filled all the gaps in our health care so that people were not impoverished and losing homes because of health care costs that some people might have through group benefits, but the vast majority of us do not. Like to me, those are easy fixes. They're just so easy to do. And how much of our social resources would we then free up for people to do other things? 
Like it's expensive to require application and monitoring and supervision and oversight. And if we had more trust in people that they're not, yeah, they're not out to get diabetic care that they don't actually have actually need. Like nobody's, <laughs> these are not things people do for fun. People are very fair usually in what they want and need. And we could just free up so many resources. And, and the same thing is if we could take a deep breath and give ourselves permission to welcome the stranger at the table instead of worrying about what they're doing at our table. Yes. How much more emotional energy would we have? I think we're built to be welcoming more than we are to be defensive. And it's, it's hard work emotionally to have to keep worrying about how could I be sued for this or how could this go wrong? We would have more emotional energy too if we were letting ourselves be the kind and positive people that I think are lurking beneath most. At least that's my experience with the vast majority of people. Well, I like I like your philosophy there. I le- I would like to agree with you on that. Um, <laughs> and I think that's the kind of thinking that we really need to be engaging in. Like, all same with the prison system. We spend vastly more amount of money on a single prisoner than we do on a single child in in public school. So our priorities are are not preventative. <laughs> in general. And what is the goal of prison, right? Our stated goal is to remove people from the space in which they've hurt so that they get healed and they create no hurt. And that's not clearly is not what's working, right? So it doesn't achieve its goal. Yeah. So repeating the same thing in the expectation of a different result is the definition of madness. I think our penal system is by that definition crazy and it's very expensive. And if instead we allow people to to be supported and we invest in their healing and inclusion, how many more souls would we have helping to do what needs to be done and adding ideas of new ways to do things? And it's just so much better. Definitely. That's my take. I'm totally outed as a complete optimist. I No, but I agree. I think that's really powerful. That's, that is not to be underestimated. So when you think about this crisis yeah. that we call climate change, which is also a crisis of exclusion, inclusion, colonialism, spill coming due in many fronts. How are you feeling about it? Are you feeling mostly hopeful, mostly scared? Where are you at with it? You know, the odd thing is, I don't really know how I feel about it. Maybe that just suggests that I'm disengaged. But I have been doing thinking about this because of my position at Lakehead. And because climate emotions are becoming more understood and talked about. Uh, I have had conversations with Dr. Lindsay Gawa and Dr. Ellen Field, who both work in the area of climate education. And because they're in climate education, are thinking more about climate emotions because they see them arise more and more with their students. And actually hosted a, a workshop for students in February, I think, invite students to explore, embrace, and witness the complex climate emotions that that they so often have. And so then I was invited to explore and witness and embrace my climate emotions. And it's been helpful to actually just try and process them and actually name them and name what I'm feeling because I engage in this work every day and I have been for seven or eight years. And so in some ways I think I'm desensitized because I talk about this and I listen about this every day. And I've heard it all probably at some point, Um, the cynicism, the optimism. So I think I used to be much more in despair and paralysis when I was a fresh student or a fresh graduate. I have some specific memories of times where I just was awake all night because I just thought 
I was just really picturing apocalyptic scenarios. But the more I work in this field, I am connected to people doing amazing work. Even if it's slow incremental changes, there's so many passionate people in our community that want to make it better. And I think because I'm, I like to think I'm evolved more in the action, even though sometimes I feel like my words sound better than my actions. But my job is so focused on trying to mobilize action around climate change. I do have hope. I, I know the word hope is contentious for a lot of people, but I'm optimistic because I think that human history has examples of when mass change happened. And I see it building. Even in the past eight years that I've worked at Lakehead, there's been so much growth in the climate change movement. And there's a lot of policies, even in Thunder Bay, we have a net zero strategy. They, the city signed up for Race to Zero, uh, which, you know, carbon neutrality by 2050. Uh, they have declared a climate emergency unanimously. Like We have a lot of documents. Of course, we need to follow through on them, but there's a lot, like the rhetoric has really changed. And and then just, you know, I'm just so inspired by the people on the ground. So I'm feeling, I am feeling supported by the people around me and eager to be in the action phase. But I will say I'm expecting my first child and there have been moments where climate anxiety has come back to me in the form of nightmare or just general worry about what type of world am I bringing my child into and what's, are they going to grow old and what's their life going to look like? And um, and that's like, that's a very personal example of climate anxiety. And then of course, of course we are in Thunder Bay, we, we are somewhat protected from the level of climate impact that is going to be seen on coastal communities where, you know, they, they might be completely gone in a few decades. Um, so I don't want to only focus on my personal life. Like I, I also do get anxiety about the lack of action that's happening in Canada and how that's going to and is affecting so many communities, especially in the global South. And it's just way too easy for people of privilege to look the other way at, at that right now. But that's sort of a nutshell of my my feelings on climate emotions. Yeah. Yeah. I had a conversation with a friend who got angry at hope. She's like, I just, I just can't deal with the hope anymore. And I maybe where you are at, but it just cut my heart because I can't not hope. Right. As soon as you tell me I can't hope, then we're screwed. Right. You got to hope because you can only do something. And the more you do, the more difference that is made and you can't solve it quickly conclusively or all by yourself and you also can't keep your eye on all the various parts that are contributing or detracting and our human nature is to focus on what we know we wish were different and to just kind of discount all the good things that might actually be adding up but they're they're not a hero in a cape saving the day they're much more complicated and nuanced than that and and what I think of as bees, I keep honeybees. And if you open up the hive and you look in, it's overwhelming. There's so many of them. And my eyes simply can't take in what all they're getting done. But my goodness, do they ever get a lot done? And if I look at any one bee, she doesn't have a perfect day. She might even die or she might get hurt. Or I might not be able to see what exactly her job is in the time that I spend looking at her. But if you pay attention to a hive, hokey jiggity, what do they ever get done? There's nobody wasting their time, by the way. There's very few that guard a hive, and they're the old ladies, 
that feel that they're ready to sacrifice their lives. A bee starts and first they work in the nursery in which they were born and then they move through various jobs maintaining the honey and and the bee pollen within the hive and then they move on to be out collecting until finally they graduate to bee defending. One little bee in six weeks and nobody's sitting around going and taking them to school. They learn by following one another around. They get a very quick instruction and they're trusted to do the job and if they need a correction somebody will come over and give a quick correction and the efficiency of a beehive is huge. So I think most of humanity, most of the time, we're all doing our thing and nobody else's job is to figure out exactly what we're doing and how much of a difference it makes. And there's only so many opportunities to sit down and dance for one another and say, see, these are the joys of my day. These are the accomplishments that I count when I worry whether it was a well-spent day. But if you add us all up as a social organism, human beings are incredibly powerful and transformative and quick moving. Um, So it's hard from the perspective of one little bee doing her little thing if you don't have faith in your society Mm -hmm. to have faith in our future. So I keep focusing back on the bees next to me and the good work they're doing because it helps me have faith in us as a society. Yeah. That's my bee metaphor. Oh, I love your inspiration from bees. I think I had mentioned to you uh, last time we spoke that Margaret, I would quote your, the world seen clearly is seen through tears. Why ask me then what is wrong with mine eyes? And it just makes me think about climate emotions. Like it seemed like you were a little emotional there. Oh, yeah. That, you know, it's very appropriate. This is a challenging situation. And we are all going to have climate emotions and having climate emotions about this. Um, but something interesting that Paul Berger, Dr. Paul Berger, who I know you know, who works at Lakehead too, in the Faculty of Education, had said to me recently was, he believes hope needs to be held that it's an ethical responsibility to have hope, especially in climate change. And I thought that was interesting and it doesn't even matter what the odds are. If we have 70% odds to, to make the IPCC's targets 30% or 1%, any little percentage that we can accomplish is alleviating suffering somewhere for someone. And, uh, you know, like you said, what's the point? Isn't that really the point of living is, is life and centering life and, and so that's why also, even though I went through a phase where I was really worried about having a child, you know, I had questioned whether I even wanted to before I became pregnant. Now I'm, I'm much more seeing having children as an act of resistance, as an act of hope, because we need to believe, I think we need to believe and keep on living and to keep on pushing for a better world. And, you know, I'd rather just focus my attention on action and seeing what, what can I do to make the place better. And actually, that made me think of of something else, um, Mm. which is even if we only have two years, and in that two years, your child is loved, and you love them, and you build all these memories together, and and you get to be a part of that relationship, then just because it's only a relationship of two years, to love and to lose is better than never to have loved. So to refuse to invest in the future because it might not be it's going to have challenges and it might be really hard mm-hmm. is to me to refute the power of love. Exactly. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know what the future holds, but we can do our best to make it a really good one. So that's where I'm putting my energy at this point. <laughs> I am so with you, Lita. And I think, you know, I mean, reproduction is such a, it's such a part of being an animal. We're animals. And um, 
if I'm at the point where I just don't think it's that's something that we're doing, then then we have lost life as something that's central to the meaning of our existence. And, and of course, all our other loving and cherished uh, animal relatives and non-animal relatives too, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I, I can't operate without hope. I know people who say that say they operate without hope that that, I I think there's a lot of people that have a lot of anger about climate change rightly so and anger can be a really empowering emotion and it can drive people to action um it doesn't work for me though no it shuts me right down Hmm. I just get really scared so I'm on the hope camp (laughs) yeah I understand it but I'm not very good with managing anger yeah and I'm scary when I'm angry. Just ask my family. <laughs> yeah. Well, anger can be a powerful force. I, I don't think I, even though I, I get angry at the injustices I see, I don't think I sit in that realm a lot either. I am definitely more in the hope camp as well and action. And when I'm not in those spaces, I'm more in the fear of space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Action is huge looking for the opportunities to be part of solutions and feel like, and, and I think owning the fact that building good community, building relationships, building our understanding, you know, of, of, of how we got here and what we want to do differently and what we have to, to regret um, and, and um, make up for, that's a huge part of the journey too. If we're going to do it right, we got to do it from the bottom up, not just skimming along the top and saying, I drive an electric car now, so everything's better. Definitely. I'm full on for transformation, but sometimes hard to communicate changing climate action through massive systemic change and sometimes easier to, to work on pieces, but yeah. Okay. So my, my, my thought on massive systemic change is the cigarette one that I think I've told you before, but when I was growing up, everybody smoked and everybody knew it was killing them. Like it was starting to show up on cigarette packs, but literally everybody smoked when I was little. So when I was little, I remember begging my parents to stop smoking, watching them try to stop, fail to stop and get very impatient with us, continuing to weep and beg them, please stop. You'll die. We don't want you to die. We love you. And it wouldn't work for them. Eventually my mom did stop with great difficulty. And then uh, I became a singer. So I'm going out into various, any public place I can find to breathe deeply and sing. And all I could breathe in was smoke because every public space was full of cigarette smoke. Um, you know, so I have a smoker's cough because I breathed in secondhand smoke for a living for 20 years. And the conversation was always, but you could never ask people to change that level of change. It's an addictive substance. You know, you can't blame the smoker for their addiction. And uh, it's a part of our culture. You can't blah, blah, blah. There are all these reasons why people and it said this was beyond our capacity to change until suddenly it changed everywhere. It changed. And nobody was smoking in the places that I sang. Nobody was smoking within 10 feet of the entrance to the place where I sang. Nobody was smoking in restaurants. Nobody was smoking in apartment buildings. Nobody was smoking in offices. It was, it was a huge change. And everybody, when it happened, acted like, yeah, of course, it's been coming forever. And in a way it had. But it had been coming with everybody saying it'll never happen until practically the day before it happened. I swear. I was here. I was living in Quebec and I moved to Ontario and Ontario had made the switch and I couldn't get over it. And literally six months later, Quebec made the switch. Right. So I couldn't say it'll never happen in Quebec because it did. Anyway, so 
when you say that you're seeing a building awareness, a building, you know, push, a building acceptance, the transformative change is necessary. It's more than just um, a veneer. That gives me great hope because I think uh, maybe we're getting closer and closer to everybody being willing to say, okay, where's the shovel? Where's the conversation? Where's the table I can sit at and find out what my place in this transformation might be? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know you watched Seth, I think you watched Seth Klein's keynote at Lakehead in March. Yes. And yeah. he, he recently wrote the book, A Good War, Mobilizing Canada for the Climate Emergency. And he spoke at our Research and Innovation Week opening ceremonies. And he gives examples just like what you just said, like whether it's World War II or the pandemic, urgent and immediate mobilization is very possible. There's lots of examples of that, whether it's sort of like the smoking example you gave or or how Canada mobilized for uh, an emergency with the Second World War or in the, the pandemic, you know, all these different institutions that were created um, and other measures created to deal with those situations. I mean, he has so many great examples, but his point really is that this can be done. The political will needs to be there, but it can be done. Tools are there. Tools are sharpened. The plan is clear. Like the science is done. It's, we just need to, um, to tip the teeter-totter and slide into that space. And I think what's sort of helpful, too, I remember in his presentation is he says, there's always a period of denial before an emergency happens, or there often is. There's a period of denial in the Second World War. The government thought, we don't need to take this seriously. You know, this is, we're not going to do anything about it. In the pandemic, there's a period of denial. Um, and so right now we may just still be a little bit in that period of denial, not the not the type of denial where folks are thinking climate change isn't human induced, but the type of denial around, I have to do something about this or, or what am I going to do about this? So, yeah, this will get solved without my involvement or it's not as bad as, you know, it can wait, it can wait. It'll be my kids that can solve it. But it's helpful to think about that. I, I, I think it helps with my hope because, okay, well. Maybe this is a bit of a pattern and, and we're just about to break through from this period of denial. So if it did break through in Thunder Bay, what can you imagine? What could you imagine would be how we would all mobilize here? I think envisioning the future is, is something we don't spend enough time on. I think we hear all too much about the negative impacts like increased flooding and increased fires and droughts. And we don't spend a lot of time talking about what if we, completely changed the narrative of how great good things look. Um, but already we're seeing some wonderful things like Thunder Bay has uh, a lot of slow impact development or like stormwater management best practices that they've implemented. I don't even know the number, but it's different LIDs, they call them, that they've used to manage uh, stormwater that's coming off paved surfaces to improve water quality. Um, like that's just one example, but an area that we're leading in, I think I would imagine... Thunder Bay, I would love to see almost like what the Year of Climate Action tried to accomplish, but being municipal-wide. So businesses, NGOs, uh, Indigenous communities, all really working together and and championing for this um, open communication channels and just a lot of partnership and relationship building so that this is a collective effort. I'd like to see that. I think that's that's possible. And... Um, I don't know. I guess a lot of the things that are in the net zero plan, that's something that we could be seeing a lot more electric vehicles, uh, ground source heat pumps, those types of things. Um, 
better work-life balance, um, better relationships with our neighbors, um, eradicating racism in this community and really having meaningful conversations about what that looks like so that everybody feels safe, maybe changing the, the way the police force operates in this, not maybe, but definitely changing the way that the police force operates in our city. Um, and like you said, putting more resources into rehabilitation and people's mental, emotional health, their, the stability of their lives. I mean, those are the types of things I imagine. Um, I don't know if that's too abstract, but there's just, there's endless possibility for how, how we could be bettering our community. I love thinking about them though. And I think it does start with imagining and talking and saying, why don't we get together and kick around a few ideas and maybe we'll find somewhere to start here now. Yeah, definitely. I'd like to see more land-based education and more time spent on the land. Like the, so I do think a huge root of this problem is, is trying to separate humans from nature, even though we are nature, you know, just seeing our economy as separate from nature. It's not, never will be. Um, so spending more time rekindling our connection with our relationship with the land and with each other, super important, big, big things to do, but can't be overlooked. So I would love to see more reverence for the land and, and more times, more spent time spent doing less, I guess, but less is more, I guess, more time spent doing just building relationships and being in community would be really nice. Living the parts of your life that feel like life mm-hmm. instead of the parts that feel like obligations. Yeah. That sounds really nice. <laughs> Doesn't that? Yeah. That was so great. I so enjoyed talking to you, Lita. I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. <laughs> is the Sustainability Coordinator at Lakehead University and a proud Thunder Bear. Currently, she's preparing to hand her role at the university over to someone else for a while as she welcomes her first child into her arms. One thing I thought of that I didn't include in that conversation, but I have to mention, is the CBC podcast Unforked. In particular, the episode called Taking the Pulse. It updates the colonization roots of our world trade in food, starting with Canadian yellow peas. That's the pulses in in question. It blew my mind and so well produced, just an amazing podcast. And that particular episode, like highly, highly recommended. Something else I totally have to recommend as a mind-blowingly educational hour, though not all fancy produced. It's, It's really a woman speaking with grace and honesty with a PowerPoint 
and some pretty solid facts that I did not know about Thunder Bay, and I'm so glad to have learned. It's Michelle Solomon. She spent some time uh, to explain the trade history of Fort William First Nation land, and it was recorded and it's available through YouTube, and I will include the link. Actually, it's already there. So, <laughs> And I have included the link at www.somethingdifferentthiswaycomes.ca. So I highly, highly recommend it. Just an excellent place to start to get a better take on, on the very recent history and the very relevant present of, of Thunder Bay. of this conversation with Lita McKellar stuck with me. I love how people inspire her and, and lift her. So many people living with such integrity and intelligence, kind people, hardworking, busy as bees, each doing something good to make things better. The other thing that really struck me is her impatience to get to the action already. I'm there too, aching to see more change right here where we live. The big systemic, this is an emergency, so we need to change everything action. We're poised to see it. I guess we need to push just a little harder to start seeing more of it with, with positivity and determined hope. I get emotional. And that's fitting. It, it, it doesn't get more existential than the future of the planet. watched Don't Look Up recently. It's a good movie, a parody, pointing out what continuing to not change much of anything really means. It was funny, but so darkly funny. It put me in a funk for days. It makes me think of a pet peeve that, that my sons, Ben and Sam, have recently begun to voice on a regular basis. They complain that too many stories aimed at people their age include a character who's not straight. Well, they're fine with that. You know, whether they're gay or queer or trans or non-binary, whatever. Their point, their issue, their peeve, is that all too often, the fact of them not being straight is all that their role is in the entire story. That all you ever learn about them is either how they figured this one out about themselves or how they came to make it public, how they came out of the closet. And for Ben and Sam, that's like so over. That is struggling with uh, an issue that has been solved that they really don't want to hang out with much anymore. And it's also kind of upsets them because it's boiling a person down to one aspect of themselves instead of letting them be a full-blown character in the story. I love it when they vent this peeve. <laughs> it makes me feel so good about how things change, sometimes pretty darn quick, without, you know, having to wave a magic wand. It just... It hits the saturation point and it changes. My parallel pet peeve is becoming these despairing narratives 
about climate change that are really trying to shove at us that it's important that this be fixed without spending nearly as much or enough time on what fixed looks like. That's what I want. I want more of that imagining, that fleshing it out for me, that giving me a chance to fantasize living in a world where all the things we know could be better are better. They're fixed. They're solved. I mean, if my rom-com, chill-out time was in a setting that was very much like today, just with enough little fixes, the things that we know we could do better, fixed, wouldn't that just deepen the joy? Like, wouldn't that be great? (laughs) So that's become my pet peeve. The thing that I don't really have much patience for anymore is just grinding at me why this needs to change. I get it. I know it needs to change. Can we please focus on what good looks like? Can we talk about how we can make it happen? Can we imagine how great it would be and why it's worth doing and put our energy and pour our imagination into that? That would be great. That's what I'm hungry for. That's my now. Despairing. That's so yesterday. Not there anymore. I think also the documentary, This Changes Everything, which um, Netflix recommended to me for so long, I got kind of irritated. I didn't immediately say, oh, I got to watch that. Netflix was sure I should, but I I wasn't so convinced. And then I did watch it. And maybe because I didn't expect much, it blew my mind. It stuck with me so much. I think about it often. So here's what This Changes Everything is about. It starts with Gina Davis, mother of a daughter, in you know the Hollywood world, suddenly starts thinking um, that she'd really like to have the math on men and women, on, on gender diversity in, in her field, like on the screen, behind the scenes, how many men, how many women. So she decides to put her money where her mouth is and hire academics, experts, to parse the numbers and, and let her know. And it was very compelling evidence. So then they dug a little deeper and said, well, why? Because apparently when movies started, women actually dominated. It was considered, you know, not a really serious thing, just a little pastime kind of art. And it was mostly women doing it. But as soon as it needed financing, that changed. And it hasn't changed back, really, since. Until someone did the math and then said, well, I challenge you. Be balanced. Be diverse. Hire people that reflect the world you live in or the world you want to see. And what a difference it made. I mean, in the documentary, they talked to people who were within the system, been writing the stories that were so male-white dominated, but hadn't even really recognized that that's what they were doing. They, they needed the numbers to see what was right in front of their eyes. And then it was remarkably easy to change and, and joyous, wonderful, to broaden their palette and to root themselves in more into what their values are, what their what their beliefs are, and, and what they do think is, is, is a good thing to support. So um, change the stories. Change the stories that we tell and consume. Change where we're looking. And I think it really can change everything. The power of talking about what you really believe with uh, respect and joy is... Um, I think it's something to contend with. Thank you, Lita McKellar, for this conversation. And thank you for listening. You can find details on everything referenced here at www.somethingdifferentthiswaycomes.ca Sign up for the weekly newsletter while you're there. I'd also like to thank Leah McKay, graphic designer, online promoter, and my niece. This was the Getting to Know Home edition of Something Different This Way Comes. 
This is the eighth in a nine-episode series this season. So next week we wrap with a conversation with Betty Karpik, artist, activist, and woman extraordinaire. I haven't had that conversation yet, so I can't tell you much, except that I'm so looking forward to it. Something different, this way comes something. Something different, something different. Something different, this way comes something. Something different, something different. different.